Hello, and welcome to the Spillman Insights Podcast, where thought leaders at Spillman, Thomas & Battle update friends and clients on legal and business issues. The information provided in this presentation and during this webinar should not be construed as legal advice. Attending this webinar does not constitute or create an attorney-client relationship between you and Spillman, Thomas & Battle, PLLC, or any attorney associated with the firm. Material distributed during this webinar is done so with the understanding that the author, publisher, and distributor are not rendering legal or other professional advice on specific facts or matters and, accordingly, assume no liability whatsoever in connection with its use. Thank you, Pamela, very much. And thank you, everybody, for joining us this morning. It uh, is uh, a shame that we can't be together and we can't see your smiling faces, but it, it is nice to have you with us even in this context and and especially during this time, it's good to get together. Uh, I do encourage you to submit your written questions. And uh, while today is going to be a bit of a sprint, uh, we will try to get to the questions today, but I commit to following up with you uh, as best I can and as quickly as I can to every question that you submit, uh, even if we can't do it today, I will will review them when this is over and uh, try to respond to you as best as I can, um, as quickly as I can. Uh, So uh, certainly appreciate uh, you attending and your participation. I I did already get some great, we we got some great questions and I noted um, some of those uh, questions that were already submitted in writing prior to this um, are are going to be addressed by later webinars. And so uh, we may not touch upon the questions that were already submitted preliminarily in, in writing that were submitted before today, uh, but I could tell you that I know we're going to have a very specific uh, nursing home uh, issue uh, webinar. There's going to be further uh, labor and employment specific uh, webinars in the future, and there have been those in the past, so please visit our, our uh, resource page for the ones we've already done and keep an eye out for those sorts of topics, which will be more directly addressed uh, in the future. What we're gonna cover today uh, is ranging everything from employer liability, both from employees and from uh, businesses being being involved in litigation from uh, their dealings with the public during this time frame, and also commercial disputes. Uh, and we hope to touch a little bit on uh, government takings and issues related to uh, seizures as well. Okay, so uh, the first uh, slide, uh, if you want to go to the next slide, Joseph. I wonder if you switch this back to me, Pamela, if I can't go from there, but this is fine. We're going to run through the several states that have already uh, issued either executive orders or legislation with regard to immunity. And um, the, the idea here is we expect serious litigation over each of these uh, situations, either challenging the constitutionality of the immunity statutes, uh, which in some states have been passed, or executive orders. You'll see briefly what we've done is highlighted on each of these, whether it grants broad immunity. And when we say broad immunity, several of the states have granted immunity to largely to healthcare providers. But in the context, it's not just in the treatment of COVID patients, except in one state. So when we say broad immunity, it is healthcare providers are going to receive broad immunity in those states from litigation if those healthcare providers were impacted by uh, COVID-19. 
Um, and Connecticut is one of those with a broad uh, immunity for healthcare providers. Next slide, please. Illinois is another one with broad immunity, including both hospitals, nursing homes, uh, dialysis centers, surgery centers, healthcare volunteers. Um, and again, these immunity orders don't include gross negligence or willful misconduct, but they do include medical treatment in support of the outbreak, even if not treating a COVID-19 patient. That's pretty consistent, uh, except in a very specific example. Next slide. And again, this is Iowa, which is really focused their immunity on uh, shortage of PPE. And so if lack of PPE or uh, expired PPE is being used, you can't be sued for that. Next slide, please. Kentucky is the only state that we have seen so far that has limited it to just the treatment of COVID-19 patients. And so there is a limited liability in uh, Kentucky under Senate Bill 150, which is for the good faith treatment of COVID-19 patients. Okay, next slide. Uh, Kentucky also uh, has provisions for businesses with PPE. Next slide is uh, Massachusetts. Again, broad immunity, um, healthcare professionals. Uh, it does specifically list also nursing homes, assisted living facilities, community health centers. Next slide. Michigan, broad immunity again. Next slide. Uh, New Jersey grants broad immunity and um, also covering specifically uh, skilled nursing facilities, hospice centers, et cetera. Uh, next slide. New York, uh, again, cover, it's a broad immunity in New York, covering hospitals, nursing homes, physicians, nurses, and other healthcare providers. Several of these states also listed out of license healthcare providers um, or healthcare providers who are licensed in other states. And each state is different. Um, and that information is on these slides. Um, but in effort to get through more material and to address some of your specific questions, we're, we're covering a lot of this uh, very quickly. Okay, next slide. Again, broad immunity in Wisconsin. Um, so uh, we'll go to the next slide. One of the uh, big questions we've asked, it, we've been asked is, is have our employers going to be liable for exposure of uh, to uh, COVID-19 in the workplace? And uh, the answer there often is going to depend on workers' comp. And while workers' comp is very state-specific uh, uh, and also District of Columbia-specific, the rules generally relate to the issues of ordinary diseases of life are often not compensable under a workers' compensation statute. Um, and additionally, you have to prove that the uh, illness that you received is uh, you've gotten it in the course of employment. So you can imagine the causation issues even if, with workers' comp. Workers' comp has a very mild uh, causation standard. And it's usually very easy to prove claims in terms of, of uh, the causation level of proof for your workplace injury. But the problem with something like COVID-19 uh, is it's a virus. Think in terms of how do you prove where, you, where you've gotten that. Uh, in the workplace, if you have a cold and someone gets a cold and they give it to their uh, 
person sitting next to them, their neighbor at work, is that actually a workplace injury? It's a, it's a general disease of life, a cold, a virus, uh, even some sort of viral pneumonia. So it becomes an issue as to whether or not this is covered, uh, COVID-19 can actually be covered by workers' comp. Why is that important, whether it's covered by workers' comp? Um, well, we'll go to the next slide. If you have, if it's covered by workers' comp, that's your exclusive remedy. So civil litigation is not generally open for injuries that are caused at work against the employer uh, if workers' compensation covers it. So next slide. That means there is a general employer immunity from civil suit for things that are covered by workers' comp. Next slide. But there are limited exceptions, uh, and most of those are tied to uh, some uh, various definition of intentional or not accidental. And the, the so the idea is even though things can be covered by workers' comp, and most states do, I've never heard of a civil suit uh, in my state. Uh, workers' comp covered that. In a lot of states, it's called uh, deliberate intent. In West Virginia, certainly the exception is known as deliberate intent. Other states, it's literally just an intentional act or it's not accidental. If a person's injured at work and is deemed to be an intentional act by the employer, you can still sue that employer in addition to uh, workers' comp coverage and in some states instead of workers' comp coverage. Next slide, please. More states have exceptions than do not. So because uh, because you haven't heard of an exception to date, doesn't mean your state does not have it. And the, uh, literally most states have exceptions to the workers' compensation statute. Next slide. And here's the list of states with exceptions in alphabetical order and the states with no exceptions. Obviously, it's easier to look at the states with no exceptions. So if you're operating in a state uh, that's not on that right side, that's not on the uh, no exception side, you're operating in a state that has some variety of exceptions. The stars have uh, special circumstances, and that often means, you know, it literally requires a, a, a beyond an intent to harm, but a physical assault, a murder, a violent circumstance in order to be an exception. Uh, Virginia specifically accepts out sexual harassment or sexual assault. Um, there was some prior case law in Virginia, which actually included, I believe, defamation and sexual harassment under workers' comp. And so they kind of cleaned that up a little bit. So they have, their, they have some exceptions. But a lot of the states with STARS require very specific individual act of violence or assault and in, in intentional, almost in a criminal context, in order to have an exception. So next slide. So this, knowing that, knowing that there's general employer uh, immunity or uh, difficult to uh, sue an employer if there's an injury in the workplace, we actually have our first lawsuit uh, of an employer being sued for uh, a death caused by COVID-19. In uh, Illinois, uh, Walmart has been sued, as along with uh, other defendants, have been sued uh, for an employee uh, that has passed away by COVID-19. Um, next slide, please. 
the basic allegations of the plaintiff, plaintiff died from COVID-19. A co-worker also died due to COVID-19. Several employees had exhibited signs and symptoms of COVID-19. And the allegation, of course, is that the plaintiff contracted COVID-19 at work. Next slide, please. So the idea is if Illinois has a workers' comp bar and it has an exception, which was on the list of having exceptions, and it's based on intentional, how can you sue for wrongful death, which is a negligent wrongful death, which is exactly what the plaintiff did here. The allegations are fairly simple, and you need to remember these because we'll touch on these in a minute. But the allegations of the negligence claim were simple, failed to cleanse and sterilize, failed to implement and enforce social distance, failed to provide proper PPE, failed to address employees that complained of having symptoms, failed to warn that employees have symptoms, and failed to have preparedness and response plans. Okay, next slide, please. Part of the response plan problem also is that they hired employees remotely, and the allegation was that they did not properly screen employees, which, again, in this time, they were expediting hiring. They had a need for quick hiring of employees. They hired employees via telephone interviews, and the allegation is that they didn't take their temperature, they didn't screen them for possible exposure to COVID-19, and they hadn't done any kind of medical screening before bringing new employees on. This lawsuit also has willful and wanton misconduct, which gets you closer to that possible intentional tort exception to a lot of workers' comp claims, but it also brings a claim against property manager of that shopping center. So it's not just Walmart, but also claims that the property manager of the entire shopping center should have shut down the stores or should have seen that the stores operating within it used proper precautions and proper procedures in order to prevent not only employees, but also the public being exposed to COVID-19. Next slide, please. So Walmart, in response, said that they took extensive measures, and associates and customers, they had hired people to do additional cleaning measures. They even installed sneeze guards at registers. They placed social distancing decals on the floors, limited the number of customers that came into the store. They did deep cleaning of key areas. And importantly, before they were up and running, they passed a health department inspection and separate third-party review, all of this before the apparent exposure to this particular employee. Next slide, please. So there is a report of Walmart taking additional measures, and there's some reports that these are after the lawsuit, some of it's beforehand, but they installed infrared thermometers at locations. They're taking temperatures of also associates when they report to work. Anyone with 100 degrees is set to go home, and you're not able to return to work until you're fever-free for three days. Okay, next slide. So we have a lawsuit that basically claims negligence against Walmart on behalf of an employee that passed away. How can you have a negligence claim in a state that has workers' comp coverage, 
And the exception is, to the extent there are exceptions, Illinois has an exception for intentional tort. So what's the theory here that allows the employee to bring a negligence claim? We ran through the allegations. There was no clear allegation of intentional tort. So why is this plaintiff's lawyer filing this lawsuit in this manner? What's the exception to immunity? Next slide, please. Literally putting on your thinking cap and trying to think it through is what's the, literally having pled negligence, what could possibly be the exception argument? Well, maybe in fact it's not an exception argument at all, but it's that it's a normal disease of life. And that just like a cold, just like a virus, just like any other infection that you might get at work, it's not covered by a worker's comp. And so the argument could be, look, this is a straight negligence claim because worker's comp does not cover it. Maybe it's not a workplace injury at all, and maybe there is no immunity. And certainly then you end up with negligence standards and or gross negligence standards. So in this instance, the plaintiff filing the complaint in the beginning of April was likely betting on the employer not wanting to argue that COVID-19 is a workplace injury. The implications being any kind of respiratory pneumonia or any kind of viral infection at work then becomes covered. Can you argue just COVID-19 is a unique virus and should be covered versus others? And I think the plaintiff here may be hedging a bet that you're not going to want to have it covered. So next slide, please. Employers are going to need to make choices when they're faced with these suits about whether or not they want to argue for a viral infection to be covered by worker's comp immunity, especially if they're faced with a hotspot, if they're one of the employers with multiple cases. Next slide, please. Okay, so looking at trying to understand whether or not COVID-19 is likely to be covered, we've done a very quick survey of the multiple jurisdictions and try to do a rating for you as to whether or not they're likely to cover or not. So next slide, please. So here's the rating, right? So yes, it's covered. So a viral infection at work is covered. COVID-19 is covered. A two rating is probably or possibly covered. Three rating is it's unlikely. And four is no, it's not going to be covered. So and we'll give you this in a different chart, but this is an alphabetical chart. You could look for your states to see if you think if we think it's covered on probably possibly type of standard or unlikely. But if you notice, Illinois is the only one on the list as a yes. So we have the plaintiff's lawyer in Illinois suing Walmart on a negligent standard, even though we're rating COVID-19 as covered by the Illinois workers' compensation statute. Next slide, please. Okay, next slide. And here's why. The complaint was filed, I think, on April 3rd. On April 13th, Illinois actually passes a specific guidance from the Workers' Compensation Commission literally saying that COVID-19 are going to be 
is going to be purported, COVID-19 is going to be covered for all workers in a relevant field of work. And so it easily is going to be covered in health care. That makes sense. And in their rating, in their proclamation, they said it's going to be all first responders and frontline workers. And so with all first responders and frontline workers, can that possibly cover Walmart? And will it be a workers' compensation standard for that suit or a negligence standard for that suit? In Illinois, they literally include as frontline workers and first responders, stores that sell groceries and medicine, food, beverage, and cannabis production and agriculture, organizations provide charitable, social services, et cetera. The odds are Walmart is covered, COVID-19 is covered, and very specifically by this, it is a store that sells groceries and medicine. And so the issue in that case is going to be the plaintiff filed the suit, the death occurred before April 13th, the plaintiff filed suit before April 13th, and we'll need to find out in Illinois whether or not in that specific suit it's going to be a covered illness or not. Next slide, please. Here is an alphabetical order again if you're looking to see if some of your jurisdictions of where we've rated it probably or possibly covered under current law in these jurisdictions without any new exceptions or new additions like Illinois has issued. Next slide, please. Alphabetically where it's unlikely. Next slide, please. And then here, these are states that literally say viral diseases or viral infections are not covered. And so in these states, it is not likely that COVID-19 is going to be covered under workers' comp, and so then you're going to be facing a negligence standard. Next slide, please. So intentional tort exceptions to workers' comp are key. They are high thresholds, often require violation of industry standards or safety standards issued by OSHA, and you need to explore those if you're in the context of an employer being sued. Are you covered by workers' comp? If you are covered by workers' comp, is there an intentional tort exception? If it is, what's that standard? And that standard is often based on violating specific safety standards or industry standards. What we can learn from these cases, though, is also that employee who sued could also very easily have been a customer who sued for the same exposure, for the same reasons, for the same allegations. Do we have claims based on exposure to the public or customers? Then also, even if you have coverage by workers' comp and you're even in a state that doesn't have an intentional tort exception or you don't meet those standards, you have household exposure cases for which you now may be at risk. Anyone familiar with the asbestos world of litigation or other types of litigation like that know that household exposure cases are abundant under the theory of an employee was exposed at work, brought that home, in the case of asbestos, brought home asbestos, and someone at the house was then exposed to asbestos and can sue directly. Obviously, no workers' comp. Same theory we need to be wary of in the era of COVID-19. Someone gets exposed at work, brings that virus home, 
and infect somebody at home and they have uh, ill health resulting or death, un an unfortunate death resulting, can they sue for the exposure at work? The key obviously there is going to be uh, causation. How do you prove where you got that exposure? But you can imagine a set of facts where someone never left the household except to go to work. And then the person who got sick never left the household at all. Um, and they're trying to make that argument. Obviously, there's still going to be causation issues, but household exposure cases are something we expect to see. Next slide, please. But what is the standard for negligence in the time of a pandemic? Next slide, please. <clears throat> Weeks ago, there was no guidance really at all in terms of a viral infection or a pandemic and, and what the standard would be. Then there were CDC guidelines. Now there are OSHA guidelines. And we will sprint through these. They, it is on the slide. And again, I apologize for not only um, having to go through them so quickly, but the delay earlier and lost time in, in going over them earlier. But we do have, now there's literally OSHA guidelines. And the key to these OSHA guidelines, if you remember when I said pay attention to the Walmart allegations, um, those allegations in that complaint literally almost mimic the OSHA guidelines. So all those allegations against Walmart, whether they're true or not, the plaintiff simply listed every OSHA guidance that there was on how to manage a workplace and preparing workplaces for COVID-19. And the plaintiff seemed to almost take just the table of contents from the OSHA guidance and list it as an allegation of Walmart. I think we can all anticipate that. And so let's run through this guidance quickly um, so that you know uh, what to look for when you're looking at the guidance and how to help manage your workplace to avoid both employer employment claims, um, injury claims to employees, but also the same standard I think is gonna be held to anyone who's working with the public. What did you follow? What guidance did you look to? Well, CDC is great, but following the OSHA guidelines for your workforce is gonna help you fend off exposure cases, work uh, household exposure cases, but also public exposure cases. So next slide, please. The, they do a uh, workplace COVID-19 risk pyramid. Next slide, please. It obviously, the risk levels also control what they expect from you in terms of how you um, are managing your workplace. And the risk levels, obviously, healthcare workers, and we'll go through that really quickly, but it's, it's different types of healthcare workers are very high, then high, then medium, and low risk. It has to... <clears throat> The level of risk depends in part on industry type, need for contact with, with, with people within less than uh, six feet. Um, your likelihood of you being exposed to people who have the disease, who have, I'm sorry, the, the virus or have COVID-19. Next slide, please. So interestingly, we won't spend a lot of time here, but very high risk exposure requires obviously much more care in the workplace. They limit very high exposure risk to healthcare workers, specifically performing aerosol generating procedures, healthcare workers or laboratory personnel collecting, handling actual specimens, and then morgue workers, but only those performing the autopsies. So next slide, please. High exposure, or again, healthcare uh, workers, but delivering support staff, not the aerosol procedure uh, healthcare workers, medical transport workers, medical workers uh, involved in preparing bodies, including um, morgue workers that are preparing bodies. Next slide, please. 
So medium worker gets a little bit tricky. Medium exposure gets a little trickier because it's, do you require frequent uh, or close contact with travelers who may have been uh, in Asia recently, for instance, or Italy? Uh, does, it, does it require you to travel there or your exposure to people who have been traveling there? Seems to be the focus on the medium risk. Next slide, please. And again, here the idea becomes uh, your con so low risk is again contact with possible uh, or suspected uh, infected people or uh, those who could be. So it's it's in other words, what is your level of contact with the medium risk, high risk, or very high risk uh, level of folks, or frankly, just sick people. So dealing with the general public falls somewhere in between the medium or low risk exposure. Um, next slide, please. So here the OSHA must do's, and if you remember the Walmart slides that we flew through too quickly, I know, these were the allegations. The allegations were they did not do the following things. So the OSHA must do's are develop an, an infectious disease preparedness response plan. I'm not saying Walmart didn't do that, by the way. I'm just saying the plaintiff literally said, did not do, did not do. Um, next is prepare to implement basic infection prevention measures. And that is everything from um, hand washing stations to having um, uh, sanitizer available, et cetera. Next, must, uh, next slide, please. Develop policies and procedures for prompt identification and isolation of sick people if appropriate. So again, that's at work. That's on you to also have uh, a plan at work if you have an employee uh, that is sick or has been exposed to sick. And I know there was a question about, do you have to tell people? And that's an interesting concept. And, and yeah, I, the idea is you do have to communicate that there has been an exposure at work. Uh, using that person's name is very risky without approval. Uh, but you do have to let people know that there has been a possible exposure at work. There is a question, a great question, about whether or not you have to, uh, if there has been a workplace exposure and a COVID-19 case at work, do you have to do an OSHA 300 log? Well, the first answer to that was yes, but just like everything else in these times, that's changing. And now OSHA has said you don't, they're not going to make you keep track of that as an injury unless you know that exposure occurred at work. And I'm not sure how that happens. Of course, healthcare settings different. They need you to track it uh, on, your, on your 300 log there. But in any speaking outside the healthcare context, uh, they're going to uh, not enforce uh, tracking all exposures at work uh, as an injury unless you know, and unless there's a, you pass a really ill-defined heightened standard for knowing that someone was exposed at work and contracted COVID-19 from a workplace exposure, uh, then that must still go on a log. But other than that, they're not asking you at this time to track it. Another OSHA must do, develop, implement, and communicate workplace flexibilities and protections. Next slide. Importantly, there's this implement workplace controls and there's a hierarchy of these controls. Uh, and, it, and OSHA believes this is the best way to sort of uh, systemically uh, and systematically remove the risk. Uh, so what are hierarchy of controls? One is engineering controls. That's everything from installing high efficiency air filter. If you're in the high risk 
whether very high risk or even at the top end of that medium risk, looking at your hair efficient, high efficiency air filters is expected. Increasing ventilation rates in a workplace, again, is one of the engineering controls OSHA is looking to at this time. Simple things, installing physical barriers such as clear plastic, uh, sneeze guards, which Walmart did in that case, by the way. Um, again, if you can do that, uh, do that. We see that at restaurants now. If you can do it in your workplace, if you can do it between people who are stationed anywhere near each other, looking to set up barriers of any kind are helpful. Next slide, please. Administrative controls require uh, action by both the uh, worker or, and employer. It's encouraging sick workers to stay at home, minimizing a contact amongst workers, clients, customers. Alternating days or changing your shifts uh, from you know four days a week, some Monday through Thursday, some Tuesday through Friday, working on the weekends so that the workforce is not interacting the same. That's administrative controls. Next slide. Uh, safe workplace practices, are, again, that is um, general, that's another type of administrative control, uh, but it's procedures for safe and proper work. Next slide, please. This is where you get the safe workplace practices, it's providing resources uh, for hand washing, provide tissues, no touch trash cans, um, hand soap that uh, doesn't require you to touch it, alcohol-based hand rubs. Uh, hand, requiring hand washing, posting signs about hand washing, using alcohol-based hand rubs, um, posting hand washing signs in restrooms, etc. Uh, things that maybe you haven't thought to do in your workplace, we now need to do. Next slide, please. Uh, personal uh, protective equipment. Um, again, gloves are always an iffy one. I mean, gloves only help if you continually replacing them. I mean, it, 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 hand washing is often better than gloves, but gloves, goggles, face shields, uh, providing that to your workforce, especially if they're exposed to the public, requiring their use, especially if they're exposed to the public and each other. Um, of course, them being properly fitted is, is key. Um, properly worn is key. Uh, regularly inspected is key. An interesting bit of employment law, which we've just seen and we'll do some reporting on later, is a donning and duffing case. Those of you familiar with that is, do you pay for the time it takes to put on and take off PPE? Um, so there is a donning and duffing case that's already been filed for lack of pay for the donning or duffing of, of PE prior to working. Things we need to think about and identify. Certainly that case is probably going to be filed. I think we'll see a lot more donning and duffing type cases. Um, and again, some states, Cecily, with the immunity statutes that we talked about earlier, have um, are looking the other way, so to speak, when it comes to healthcare workers and the properly fitted or worn PPE. Next slide, please. And obviously, follow any and all other OSHA standards that already exist for your workplace. Next slide, please. So one of the things that we've seen, even if it, in, in your workplace folks are looking a different way, is you need to properly document any kind of precautions. Any kind of change in your workplace, anything you've done that is related to COVID, make sure you write that down. Make sure you document it. Make sure you document the thought process. Make sure that you have... Um, 
I'll go back to the immunity statutes. Those that say, yeah, health care practices are immune from if they've been impacted by COVID-19, they have to document how they've been impacted by COVID-19 and why that injury that occurred or that slip-up that occurred that wasn't with a COVID-19 patient was caused by you dealing with COVID-19. So same thing here is make sure you're properly documenting what precautions you are taking, what changes you're making to meet the COVID-19 issues. Consistent implementation and enforcement as best you can, but also be ready for constant change and integration of new guidance. Remember when we first started doing these webinars, the CDC was the best guidance out there. Now OSHA has its own guidance. Those may change. And please keep track of your changes in any decisions or any workplace changes you make and how they relate to COVID-19. Next slide. Where I get to pick up. Yes, sir. So now thanks for a very interesting presentation. We had two questions that came in that we'll try to turn back to at the end. But right now I'd like to pick up where you left off on some of the risks to the workforce and talk about some of the commercial implications, the types of claims and issues that are affecting businesses' bottom lines. And there are any number, and we won't be able to get through all of them today. But I want to focus on two topics, the commercial implications from the executive orders that have been issued, and also the commercial implications from the Paycheck Protection Program loans that were authorized under the CARES Act, the Coronavirus Aid Relief and Economic Something Act. And under executive orders, I'm going to focus on particularly constitutional claims, particularly takings claims. But I do want to highlight a couple of things that are implicated by these executive orders, one being insurance coverage disputes. We've seen a number of cases already filed over business interruption coverage and whether or not that's triggered by the COVID-19 related impacts or by what I think of as these government shutdown orders. We discussed that in a previous webinar, and I would expect for more information on that to be forthcoming. Force majeure claims are also going to be a hot topic under these executive orders when governments are shutting businesses down or limiting their operations. We can expect that to affect people's ability to perform another contract. Our colleague Jim Walls talked about that on a previous webinar, and we'll also be talking about that in an upcoming one. So I would recommend people keep an eye out for that. But again, I want to focus on constitutional claims and then on the PPP loans, focus on lender lawsuits and government lawsuits, by which I mean lawsuits against the government. So with that, jump right in. And what I have up on the screen right now is an example of one of many executive orders that have been issued by governors and sometimes mayors and counties across the country. This one is West Virginia Executive Order 9-20, and this is West Virginia's version of the shutdown order. And of course, there are many, and they all vary in some degree from state to state. But this one requires non-essential business and operations to temporarily seize operations. And there are any number of exceptions within that, but it's just one of many examples. So what does all of this mean from a constitutional standpoint? Well, I think there are going to be a number of issues, and just skip over some of these quickly, but 
we could foresee some Commerce Clause issues. So under the Commerce Clause of the U.S. Constitution, Congress shall have the power to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states and with the Indian tribes. That also has a corresponding limitation on states' abilities to restrict or discriminate in the area of interstate commerce. Um, and the question I think that we'll see here is whether these executive orders can limit sales to out-of-state customers. Um, for those of you in the West Virginia, Pennsylvania region, you might be aware that Pennsylvania um, closed its liquor stores. And so there were people from Pennsylvania driving across the border to West Virginia to buy um, liquor, um, which, of course, is um, inconsistent with the idea of a stay-at-home or shelter-in-place order. And so these West Virginia counties, at least some of them, reacted by requiring a West Virginia ID to buy liquor at their um, local stores. And the question is, is whether that's legal um, or constitutional under the Commerce Clause. To my knowledge, no one has raised that issue yet. There are also potential contract clause issues. Um, contract clause says no state shall pass any law impairing the obligation of contracts seems pretty ironclad, although in practice it has been um, interpreted um, with a little bit more or probably much more nuance. But we can see some issues um, for these executive orders in at least two ways. Um, one is can executive orders pause payment obligations? So we've seen primarily the courts um, stop evictions and um, say that there will be a moratorium on eviction proceedings in the courts while the COVID-19 pandemic is um, ongoing or um, while there's an emergency. We've also seen um, some efforts to suspend debt collection efforts. And our colleague Kelly Kimball wrote on legislation that has been proposed um, in Congress to that effect. And I would encourage you to visit our COVID-19 um, task force website to read that. But those raise interesting questions about um, whether that's constitutional under the contract clause. Again, to my knowledge, no one has raised a challenge on that basis yet. There are also um, a number of First Amendment issues from these executive orders. Um, I think we're all very familiar with the First Amendment, but it has basically three prongs, a religious um, freedom prong, a free speech prong, and then a, a peaceable assembly and petitioning prong. And the question here for these executive orders is whether they can restrict religious gatherings, public gatherings, and even certain types of litigation activity. Um, the certain types of litigation activity, for example, being the debt collection activity that um, I mentioned previously. But we have um, already seen lawsuits, um, including, I think, a highly publicized lawsuit out of Kentucky relating to Easter gatherings over um, the freedom of religion aspect of the First Amendment. And we've also seen several um, cases challenge these executive orders based on the um, restriction of the right to peaceable assembly. Of course, there are also Second Amendment issues, Second Amendment being the um, right to keep and bear arms. And we've seen litigation already asking whether executive orders can restrict um, firearms dealers and gun ranges from engaging in their businesses. There was a lawsuit filed recently against Governor Northam in Virginia by an indoor gun range that was shut down under that state's executive order. There was a lawsuit um, filed in Pennsylvania several weeks ago against Governor Wolf's shutdown order that affected firearms dealers. 
Um, the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania actually resolved that um, rather quickly and adversely to the firearms dealers. But um, whether uh, as a direct connection or not, Governor Wolf shortly amended his executive order to allow a limited exception for firearms dealers in the Commonwealth. There might even be Fourth Amendment issues, the, the Fourth Amendment being the protection against um, unreasonable searches and seizures. And there's a question here about whether law enforcement, for example, can stop businesses employees to confirm that they're traveling for an essential purpose, or whether a law enforcement can conduct spot inspection businesses to make sure that they're complying with operations under the um, executive orders. We haven't seen um, any cases like this so far. Um, in fact, the only Fourth Amendment case that I have seen related to um, a government order that shut down um, private beaches, um, and that one was not successful. There are also potential 14th Amendment issues, the 14th Amendment having multiple subparts, but um, incorporating the idea of privileges and immunities, equal protection and due process. And so some of the questions that come up here are whether these executive orders can restrict interstate travel. So um, there's a lawsuit out of North Carolina um, that challenges a, a North Carolina County's order that restricts out-of-state travel. Um, and it was filed by people who have second homes um, in that county. There's um, also the question about whether um, the executive orders can be enforced in close businesses without providing pre-deprivation remedies. In other words, the opportunity to be um, to have notice and to be heard before your business is closed. There was a challenge on that basis in Pennsylvania that um, ultimately was unsuccessful. The court there saying that um, there were sufficient um, post-deprivation remedies, but we would expect others um, on that basis. And then another question, of course, is whether um, these executive orders can draw distinctions between different businesses or activities. For example, why should a private golf course have to shut down, whereas a municipal golf course um, might be able to stay open? There is a lawsuit in Massachusetts that um, asks why um, recreational marijuana businesses have to close, whereas medicinal marijuana businesses can continue to operate. And so we would expect to see um, lawsuits on that basis as well. But what I really want to focus on is the Fifth Amendment. And the Fifth Amendment has says no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. And the first part, the due process has procedural and substantive components that could be very important in looking at the constitutionality of these executive orders. But what I want to focus on right now is the question that I think a lot of people are asking as these shutdown orders affect their bottom lines. Are these taking their private property without just compensation? And what are the potential taking scenarios here? Well, we have physical takings, and those are things like seizures of personal property. PPE would probably be the um, most likely scenario here. Government taking personal protective equipment from businesses to distribute to hospitals or to frontline responders like um, police officers, et cetera. The other thing, of course, that we could see are seizures of real property, for example, taking hotels that are currently not in use and converting them into makeshift hospitals if, God forbid, we were to find a scenario where we reached capacity in our current hospitals. So those are some physical takings 
scenarios. But there are also scenarios we could see involving regulatory takings, and there are really four types. There's, um, and they're named after the cases, the Supreme Court cases that establish the rule. So we have Loretto physical invasions, and that case referred to a, a situation where a regulation required building owners, I believe in New York City, to install cable boxes on their um, in their buildings. You have Nolan Dolan on constitutional conditions. Those um, cases turned on uh, or involved cases where municipalities condition the issuance of a permit on a property owner giving up a property right. Then we have what are called Lucas total takings. Um, and those are cases where um, a regulation deprives an owner of all economically beneficial use of the property. And then we have Penn Central takings. And Penn Central takings are basically everything else that is a regulation that is alleged to form a taking of property. So the question then is, what are the available remedies? If you think that you have a taking of your property, um, what can you do? Well, you can ask for damages because the, the cause um, itself says that private property shall not be taken for public use without just compensation. So most courts have held that your remedy is in damages and in damages exclusive. So you can get that. But the question always becomes, what is just compensation for the property that has been taken? And I won't get into that today because um, there are any number of, of tests and, and ways that you can evaluate that that we could spend itself an hour talking about. The question is also, can you get injunctive relief? Um, in other words, can you get a court to prohibit the um, government from taking your property because it violates the takings clause or because they haven't paid you compensation? And the answer to that is almost never. We have, um, we've actually done that successfully for a client. We've gotten an injunction to a, an effort to condemn property using um, eminent domain power, but um, it's almost never possible um, in most cases, I should say. Um, generally, you'll have two cases where it might be possible. One is when the property is being taken for something other than public use, in other words, for a private use, and the other case being where the um, taking would violate some other um, constitutional protection. Say, for example, the taking was an effort to discriminate against a suspect class like an unfavored um, religious group or something to that effect. So most cases, you'll be limited to seeking damages for the taking in what's known as an inverse condemnation proceeding. But here, I do want to note that it's important to check for ripeness issues because one thing that often comes up in these regulatory cases is whether a taking has even occurred. And that is whether, um, and often that depends on whether the regulation actually applies to the property at issue or um, whether there's an exception available that has or has not been pursued. And so here we could see that come into play in the exemptions that are available under some of these shutdown orders. So if a property owner has the possibility to apply for an exemption but has not, then a court might say um, that a, a taking is not yet ripe because there's no guarantee or certainty as to whether um, the regulation would actually apply. So I talked earlier about um, a potential seizure of personal property. And here I just want to highlight the Pennsylvania commandeering order that was issued by 
um, Governor Wolf maybe a week and a half ago, and this is just a small part of it, but you can see here um, that Governor Wolf is relying on several sections of the Emergency Management Service Code to allow Pennsylvania's Emergency Management Agency to commandeer personal protective equipment, pharmaceuticals, and other medical resources necessary to um, address the COVID-19 crisis. And in fact, he goes further and directs um, private, public, and quasi-public healthcare providers and facilities, as well as manufacturers, distributors, and suppliers of those resources to submit current inventory quantities. Now, um, although certainly seizures, I think, would constitute a takings here and in similar cases, and there are others, we've seen something similar in New Jersey, um, the statute generally provides for a remedy and provide, uh, requires the government to establish some form of compensation. And this commandeering order is, is no exception. I just have not excerpted um, that portion of the order for this presentation. But to turn then to regulatory takings in brief, there are really two um, quotes that I think we're going to be seeing quite a bit in our takings claims in, in the future. One is from a case called Pennsylvania Coal Company v. Mann from 1922, really the first regulatory takings case. And it says, if a regulation goes too far, it will be recognized as a taking. And the other one that we will see quite a bit, we're already seeing in almost every takings case, is the idea that the Fifth Amendment's guarantee that private property shall not be taken for public use without just compensation was designed to bar the government from forcing some people alone to bear public burdens, which in all fairness and justice should be borne by the public as a whole. And the idea of um, some people bearing these public burdens alone, I think, has um, a special force in this context where we find ourselves now because some businesses, restaurants, retail businesses are being much more affected than others um, whose employees are perhaps more able to work from home. So I mentioned earlier Lucas total takings that comes from the case that's cited here. The basic facts are um, coastal property that was rendered valueless by South Carolina registration that prohibited erection of any permanent habitable structure. And the rule that the court established there um, says that if a regulation deprives a property owner of all economically beneficial uses, then that's a categorical taking and the owner is entitled to just compensation. And this is what we are seeing already in our takings lawsuits. We're seeing um, plaintiffs argue that because they have been deprived of access or the economically beneficial use of their property during these shutdown orders, they've been excluded by the shutdown orders from their property, that this is a Lucas-style total taking of property. The alternative um, that we're also seeing is the Penn Central takings um, type of claim. And this is sort of your default regulatory takings framework. And it's named after a case um, from New York in 1978. In that case um, involved landmark laws that required a property owner to preserve a structure, the historic Penn Central Station and limited development opportunities. And that establishes an ad hoc factual inquiry that considers the impact on a parcel as a whole. And it looks generally at three factors, the economic impact on the property owner, an interference with distinct investment-backed expectations, and the character of the governmental action. So the character in this context would be orders that would restrict or prohibit the use of property. 
So how have we seen this come up in the COVID-19 context so far? Well, we've seen a line cook in Colorado um, file a takings lawsuit. We've seen beachfront owners in Florida, including former Governor Mike Huckabee. We've seen um, restaurant owners in Connecticut. We've seen wedding chapel owners in Las Vegas. And we have seen a golf course in Pennsylvania file takings claims alleging that in one way or another, their state's um, shutdown orders took their property without just compensation. So, so far, um, the early returns are not great for these plaintiffs. In Dodero, which is the Florida case, the request for preliminary injunction was denied. In Friends of Danny DeVito, the request to vacate or strike the governor's shutdown order was also denied. And the reason is because, uh, at least in the Danny DeVito case, um, is because the plaintiffs ran into what I call the Tahoe Sierra problem. And that case is Tahoe Sierra Preservation Council, the, the regional planning agency, U.S. case from 2002. And it alleged a Lucas-style total taking based on a 32-month development moratorium on property around Lake Tahoe. And the court said that that would not be a total taking. It refused to consider a slice of time as um, a categorical, categorical deprivation of property. And its concern was that the delays inherent in the government permitting process and critically um, use of police powers would otherwise result in takings um, even for minimal delays. And so you can see here a quotation from the Friends of Danny DeVito case, and no, it's, it's not that Danny DeVito, it's a, it's a politician with the, the same name as the actor. Um, and you can see a quote there um, relying on that um, Tahoe Sierra framework in Pennsylvania to say that no taking occurred um, as a result of the shutdown order. The other problem that we could see is the police power problem. And this is a, a case from a case that I believe is called Letch v. Jackson, it's out of the Tenth Circuit, a um, very recent decision, actually is up on appeal to the Supreme Court of the United States. And it says when the state acts pursuant to its police power rather than the power of eminent domain, its actions do not constitute a taking for purposes of the takings clause. And I, I do want to very clearly note here that not everyone agrees that this is the proper framework and that there's a distinction between a taking under police power and a taking under eminent domain. Um, that's actually the focus of the appeal to the Supreme Court. Not every jurisdiction takes that view. Pennsylvania, um, in its Danny DeVito case, seems to have rejected it, um, at least for the time being, relying instead on the Tahoe Sierra framework. But it could present problems for some takings plaintiffs. So that brings me to thoughts on future takings claims. And I say future because I would expect for these to continue to come up. And, and the reason being is because there are going to be too many businesses affected by these shutdown orders who are looking for some form of compensation and asking why they should bear um, alone the burdens of um, social distancing and um, isolation that um, really are being enjoyed by the public as a whole. So I think these will be highly fact-specific. Physical seizures or regulatory burdens, I, I think physical seizure claims will have a greater chance of success, but that's not to say that regulatory burden claims cannot um, also um, state a colorable claim. Certainly whether something is permanent or, or temporary, has the restriction caused a business to shut down or um, has it only temporarily impacted that business? Um, similarly, 
did the shutdown order require a total shutdown or did it just limit business? I think something that we can see here is in the example of restaurants, um, those that are required to shut down totally or those that are able to convert their business to some form of takeout. Um, the last thing is whether there's a clear application of the regulation or simply speculation on how it will apply. And that goes back to the ripeness issue I discussed earlier. The other um, thing I'd like to note is that I think these Lucas-style claims that rely on an allegation of a total taking may be bolstered by business failures. And that's um, such a, a, a terrible thing to, to say, and, and certainly we don't hope we hope that no businesses fail. But you know, to the extent that these shutdown orders deprive businesses of revenue and um, cause them to close, I think that those businesses may have stronger claims than others who experience simply total, uh, temporary losses in revenue but are able to resume operations later. Um, jurisdiction will matter. Um, certainly the 10th Circuit right now, based on the case we saw before, is not a great place to bring a takings claim for um, impacts from shutdown orders. And I think external circumstances will matter as well. Um, you know, judges are human um, and I think are probably hesitant to interfere right now with um, orders that are designed and intended to protect public health. I think in the future, something that will be in the background of all of these takings claims is how would the government pay for them if um, relief were granted to the plaintiffs as well, um, just based on the sheer volume that we should expect. So um, briefly, Paycheck Protection Program, as I mentioned, we've seen two categories of lawsuits. Um, we've seen lender lawsuits. Are lenders violating the CARES Act by imposing their own requirements for um, Paycheck Protection Program applicants, such as pre-existing borrower relationships? Um, that was a case filed in Maryland against the uh, Bank of America. A, a preliminary injunction was already denied in that case, and it's now up on appeal to the Fourth Circuit. Another lender lawsuit asks whether lenders unlawfully prioritized Paycheck Protection Program applications from larger businesses because they generated higher fees than smaller businesses. The plaintiffs in those cases say that the statute um, required um, banks to process um, those based on the order in which they were received, but that instead the banks, um, J.P. Morgan Chase and Wells Fargo, um, prioritize um, pre-existing customers and larger businesses all to generate more fees. Those were just filed a couple days ago in the Central District of California, and um, we'll be watching those as they go forward. The other thing that we've seen are um, lawsuits against the government is the um, SBA violating rights to free speech and equal protection by enforcing a regulation that prohibits paycheck protection program loans to political consulting and lobbying businesses. Um, I think um, those were the ones that sued in this particular case, although there are other types of businesses that are also ineligible and that I expect could have brought similar claims. Um, an injunction request in that case was denied by the district court in the District of Columbia um, on the 21st, and an appeal was um, filed to the um, Circuit Court of Appeals in the District of Columbia on the 22nd. Um, the other case, um, and I apologize, there's a typo there, it's the SBA. It asks whether the, the SBA discriminated against women and minority-owned businesses by delaying the Paycheck Protection Program application date for so-called non-employer businesses. Those are businesses that um, are independent contractors, et cetera, and instead of, I think, the April 3rd 
application date for W-2 businesses, those um, businesses were um, not able to apply until April 10th and as a practical matter, perhaps even later. And they say that because um, women in non-employer businesses are predominantly women and minority owned, that that is unlawful racial discrimination. Um, an interesting um, case, not sure what their likelihood of success is, but um, one to monitor. And I would expect more litigation, particularly against banks and financial service companies um, as um, businesses um, frustrated by their inability to get um, paycheck protection loans um, seek to shift that blame elsewhere or, or to find compensation for, um, for that. So um, with that, we were going to go through environmental considerations, but I know we're running over. So I will just note that there are some environmental considerations to run through and um, you can find those on the slides and also on our materials where we would encourage you to um, to visit for um, sort of up to the minute updates on the COVID-19 situation and litigation. So with that, um, Niall, we have three questions that have come in. We have one for me, two for you. So I will, um, I will take the first question, which asks whether it would be a taking if a government agency required a facility to only see specific cases. For example, New York making one hospital a COVID-only site. Um, I think that's a really interesting um, question. The first thing that I would look at is whether New York would have a specific statute that would require compensation in that particular context. But if it doesn't, I think that I would be looking at the revenue impacts because one of the things that we have seen from the um, from hospitals is that the um, inability to provide elective surgeries has had major revenue impacts. And so I would imagine that would be um, the context in, in this case as well, and perhaps would be one of the ways that you could um, articulate a takings claim. So that was the um, the, the question on takings. Um, yep. Niall? Sure, thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Um, I, a couple, real quick on the environmental front, guys, on, on that. The issue there is the EPA's discretionary enforcement. We're already seeing some, uh, and if you recall that in that situation, EPA said that they're not going to actively enforce civil litigation um, or, or institute civil litigation on folks who have uh, exceedances or uh, variances on their permits or, or, or have slight problems with their emissions, um, they're not going to seek civil enforcement of those. And that's something to keep your eye on. The idea is folks are starting to litigate those issues already. It's, it, and we had predicted that that would happen while the EPA isn't going to do it, but we think activists will. So uh, check back with us on those. And, and frankly, our prior webinar addressed those issues. The two questions we've seen uh, that we'll try to touch on real quickly, they relate to each other here, is will state workers' compensation commissions issue uh, emergency amendments like Illinois? I, I think that's very likely. Um, th there are some states that have already you know, sort of built in that with, they don't, it doesn't uh, cover viruses. Um, and so those states may not. But other states where it's close, they may in fact seek to cover COVID-19 specifically 
and seek to cover it in certain industry. And I think you do need to keep an eye on that. I don't know that it will extend to all industries or all viruses, et cetera. That's a very slippery slope. Um, and uh, you could think about any cold uh, causing uh, 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 some sort of cold or, or sniffle at work, then creating a viral pneumonia that's not COVID-19. It's all viral pneumonia now going to be covered workers' comp because I got it at work. The causation issues alone are a nightmare, um, but I think we should, we will expect to see uh, states move specifically to address it because I think letting litigation answer that question is, is uh, while make might make lawyers very, very busy, um, I think states are going to try to answer that question for us short of litigation. Uh, another question was, uh, if a person is high risk for complications uh, due to pre-existing conditions, um, and, and a business opens, um, if the company decides it can't keep the worker due to business needs, does a person go on unemployment or uh, is simply laid off? Is there any anything the worker can do? That's a, a, a very fact-intensive, specific question. Uh, there is a, an issue that's arising now. And so to answer that question, I don't know that I can answer that very specifically now, but the issue is uh, the unemployment compensation bonus that people are getting uh, the $600 bonus, there is already an issue that's popping up with whether or not uh, if a job, if your job is available and you turn it down um, because the bonus is worth more than what you'd make if you went back, is that a voluntary quit? And I know the Pennsylvania uh, uh, governor and others have you know, sort of commented on it, and then the staff has to run in behind them and sort of say, well, that, that's, you know, that's not uh, exactly right. You can't just not go back to work um, and then still expect to get unemployment. So there are issues around that bonus, and I think we're going to see that play out. Uh, hopefully rules will be developed around that, that bonus and people deciding themselves not to go back to work because of the bonus, even though the job's waiting on them. Uh, with in terms of uh, complications and going back to the workplace, that is something that's going to have to be uh, Handled delicately, obviously, uh, but but I think if someone is if their job is eliminated due to business needs, unemployment is going to be the right place for them to go. Uh, is and then the whole other question that's implied in that question is how do you treat someone who who is subject to uh, has the as high risk for complications due to pre existing conditions. Uh, that is in the realm of employment discrimination and perceived disability, and I think you need to pr proceed with caution on and along those lines as you would any other sort of perceived disability issue. Uh, you can't you can't ignore the standards of employment law and employment discrimination law when, when facing this issue of COVID-19. So I hope that generally answers the question. Yes, unemployment if your job is eliminated uh, due to business needs, but in terms of how do you treat an employee with uh, high risk for complications? I think you need to consult your employment lawyers very specifically on that issue. Uh, and I know our folks have had uh, webinars and they're hopefully online and maybe, in fact, answered that question already. Uh, I really appreciate everyone. Sorry for the technical snafu at the beginning, folks. I know that caused us to run over here at the end. It was already going to have to be a sprint, uh, but we, we put a lot of content in the slides knowing uh, that, that we had a lot of great questions coming in from you. So we hopefully have, have, were able to answer the questions during the webinar and put more content in the slides for you, which we'll post and we'll have available to you as well. Um, 
but thank you again, everybody, for attending. And again, I apologize for the technical snafu. Thank Joseph for picking up that part of it and handling it very smoothly. So thanks again for everybody. Thanks, Pamela, for your help as well. Thank you, everyone.